Hello and welcome wherever you are to this HEC Paris debate on the US presidential elections. I'm Daniel Brown, the chief editor at HEC uh, Communications Department, uh, as well as being an independent reporter outside of this uh, noble business school. We're recording this exchange at precisely 10 a.m. Paris time on November the 5th, 2020. And in many ways, the time and date have a crucial bearing on our analyses of these elections because rarely has so much uncertainty and suspense surrounded a US presidential election, in this case for the 46th president. As we talk, uh, this is how the situation stands. Uh, Joe Biden, the Democratic candidate, has 264 electoral college votes. Um, and we'll come back to very briefly what that means, uh, the electoral college votes, in a moment. And the incumbent Donald Trump for the Republican Party has 50 electoral college votes fewer. That's 214. So um, very quickly, uh, in terms of the popular votes, it seems to reflect actually that gap, um, which is not always the case with a, a record, historic record of 71 million votes for Joe Biden. And so um, the third best ever number of votes for Donald Trump, uh, 68 million votes uh, over the 68 million. And there's still many ballots yet to be counted. Um, the uh, there's uh, we're still waiting for five states to finalize their counts, and that's uh, Georgia, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Nevada, and Alaska. So that's where we uh, stand just now. As I said, a quick word on how the electoral college vote works. So when we Americans, and there are four here present, uh, cast uh, our votes, uh, our ballots for the US president, we're actually voting for a representative of that candidate's party known as an elector. elector. Uh, there are four, 538 electors who then vote for the president on behalf of the people in their state. Each state is assigned a certain number of these electoral votes, and that's based on the number of congressional districts they have, plus two additional votes representing the state's Senate seats. Washington DC, where I and one of my three guests here vote, is also assigned three electoral votes, despite having no voting representation in Congress, but that's another story. And the vital figure that we're all keeping an eye on is this majority of 270 of these votes that is needed to win the presidency. Uh, we, uh, I'd like to uh, now turn to my three participants in today's roundtable. And by the way, there are other votes for the Senate and for the House, but we'll come to that later. First, I'd like to uh, present Megan Scullion. Uh, welcome, uh, Megan, from Geneva. Uh, you're an MBA student uh, at uh, HEC. You're going to uh, graduate uh, next year from New York, uh, the New York area, where you studied and worked for 10 years in management in retail, luxury, fashion, and, and more. Um, there's Jeremy Gez, who is uh, associate professor and the co-director of the HEC Paris Center of Geopolitics. Uh, and uh, you've published, uh, Jeremy, a uh, book in French, which I'll translate uh, the title of, uh, you, The United States, Improbable Decline, Impossible Rebound. 
and uh, you're the one who voted with me in Washington, D.C. And uh, finally, I'm pleased to welcome uh, Chantal Carlton, um, your associate professor in the Department of Language and Culture at HEC Paris, with a lot of teaching experience, uh, not only in universities here in France, but also in uh, Indiana University in the United States. And you voted for uh, one of the battlegrounds in the United States that was key to the 2016 um, uh, presidential election, and that is Florida, which you visited uh, this year. Uh, so I'd like to turn, uh, first of all, to uh, you, uh, Jeremy, and um, uh, ask you first, uh, uh, um, just uh, what is your response uh, to these election results as they stand? So <clears throat> right now, as you said, uh, 264 electoral votes. The moment we're speaking, uh, it seems as if it might take a little bit more time to uh, figure out uh, for um, Joe Biden. It means uh, he has six more to go to get elected. It means that uh, basically he would need to win Nevada, which hasn't been called, or Pennsylvania, or Georgia, or uh, North Carolina, one of those four states. Um, and it seems as if, uh, you know, the likelihood right now looks a little bit better than uh, the election of Donald Trump. That's what the numbers are telling us. On the other hand, uh, there is no repudiation of Donald Trump, contrary to what some uh, Biden uh, supporters might have hoped for. Uh, you see that in some battlegrounds, it was extremely, extremely close. And that in some battlegrounds, such as Florida, uh, uh, he was able, Donald Trump, the incumbent president was able to win it. So it's not a landslide win. And this makes me think this is a country that is extremely, extremely divided and that no matter who wins, uh, the next president is likely going to have uh, huge tasks in front of him, especially in terms of trying to bring this country back together. And I suspect Donald Trump and Joe Biden have probably different visions on how to do that, but uh, most certainly it's going to be on the table. And the second thing that I'd like to say is that we're going to have to have to do some soul searching on the poll question. I am not one right now saying that the poll industry is that I read that on social media. I don't believe so. It felt as if what we were saying, if you analyze polls quickly, uh, that uh, in, in, nice, in, in, in a thorough way before the election, uh, we knew that if uh, Joe Biden was able to win quickly and uh, without uh, uh, any questions in Pennsylvania and in Florida, this uh, race was a done deal. But if instead uh, it wasn't as clear cut and or if Trump won uh, one of those two states, then it was basically 50-50. And this is what happened. And it's exactly uh, what we're living right now, uh, what we're living through right now. So, you know, the polls, if you study them, they were giving us a pretty accurate picture of how divided this country was. Uh, the example uh, is uh, perhaps found in Florida, Chantal uh, Carlton. Um, this is uh, um, a state which uh, Donald Trump won with actually more votes uh, than in terms of percentage uh, than uh, in 2016, 51.2% uh, 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 
of the votes compared to 49 four years ago. Your, your response in general to uh, this division 50-50 that is reflected, it seems, uh, throughout uh, the United States uh, in 2020. Exactly as you said, Daniel, this question of not only did Trump win Florida again, but he actually gained a lot more voters. And as Jeremy is saying, we see really this reflection of this polarization, but also in terms of how the structure of voting is constructed in Florida. Obviously, with the 29 electoral votes, Florida is a huge win. But we're also wondering as to how that voting um, took place, this idea that in Miami-Dade County in the South, we had so much, so much advertising that the Trump campaign was really pushing towards the Latino community. I mean, it was actually starting even at the Republican National Convention when for the, at the first night, Trump had invited Maximo Alvarez, he's a Cuban-born um, Floridian millionaire, saying that really red baiting, and this was kind of the strategy of the Trump campaign in Florida, saying any vote for the Democrats, any vote for Joe Biden is a vote for communism, is a vote for socialism. And he's saying, with my history, with my family's history, really hearkening back to his origin story in Cuba, is a vote for terror. It's a vote for all of these horrible regimes that we have been living through. So this idea that Trump's strategy, unfortunately, paid off. If we look at how this very cynical and transactional relationship that he has with the Latino voters in Florida specifically, we can also be asking ourselves how not just this ad campaign worked, but also how voting was structured in the United States, specifically in Florida. If we look at how Black and people of colors, their voting mail-in ballots were flagged at twice the amount in states like Florida, then for white voters, we have to be asking ourselves the question, the structural issues that are in place and how they played out. Obviously, we still don't have a very clear answer on the 300,000 ballots that have been misplaced or lost. There's a, a lot of different questions as to how the postmaster general has essentially repudiated the federal order to be looking for those 300,000 ballots. If we're looking at those ballots, which are really sort of mapped onto Florida, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, all of these missing ballots are from these battleground states. If we look at how mail-in ballots by the Black voters, by people of color in Florida specifically, have been flagged at twice the amount of white voters, that being said... Joe Biden was still able, is still able to maintain this lead. So obviously this blue wave that we were hoping for is not necessarily playing out as we had expected, but it's yet overcoming all of these structural issues that have been in place with not just electoral college, but in voting in the United States. Yeah, it seems to be a, a broken record in many ways in terms of uh, the same questions being posed uh, with acuity four years ago um, and even going back to 2000, the uh, George Bush against Al Gore exactly. election. Uh, it was a lot more decisive in the state of New York uh, for one side, and that was Democratic uh, Megan. And uh, there, uh, Joe Biden took 55.5% uh, of the votes. Um, 
Although that is down again from 2016 uh, when Hillary Clinton won 59% of the uh, votes. And um, Donald Trump seems to have a, quite a powerful base even there. Your reaction, Megan, to uh, these, uh, uh, these uh, uh, results so far? Yeah, um, so I lived in New York City for uh, a number of years, and I originally was born and raised in Buffalo, New York. Um, and I think if you look at the data from um, New York State, you'll see that um, while New York City is overwhelmingly blue, uh, Buffalo is actually red at the end of the day. So I think that does show that, um, you know, there is a mix in the state of, of support. It, uh, New York is historically um, very democratic, always blue. Um, but I think the reality is that there, um, you know, Buffalo is a, a blue collar city, uh, part of the Rust Belt. And I think that um, there are a lot of people who who vote red and who uh, really resonate with the, the message, um, this kind of feeling of being left behind and the um, feel that Trump speaks to them. So I think that um, this just goes to show that even in states where, uh, you know, there is a very clear, um, you know, democratic win, that when people are sitting around the dinner table, um, oftentimes within the same family, you can have people um, on opposite sides. Um, and I think another good example coming out of um, the elections are, are when we look at Congress. So um, the the election um, between Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and John Cummings uh, was a landslide for AOC. And I think that um, that also shows kind of the difference between, um, you know, the youth, uh, you know, the, the new generation coming in um, and, uh, and kind of the old guard. So it's uh, interesting to see that result as well um, and kind of um, could speak to what we might see in the future when the new generation um, comes up. And then, um, yeah, I think the other piece is just around the election uh, as a whole. I completely echo what Jeremy was saying in that, uh, you know, this race was really, it's still really close, uh, vote by vote. And I think a lot of people in the U.S. were really hoping for some sort of um, moral victory in a sense that, um, you know, all of the, the issues that are at play right now, that people would go out there and use their voice to vote. Um, and I think that, uh, at least on the Democratic side, um, when we saw the results probably like midday or early of um, yesterday, it was a little disheartening, I think, to see that it wasn't more of, um, of really a push for people to, to bring in some new change. Um, but we'll see what happens as they keep counting the votes. Thank you, Megan. You touched on a lot of issues we'll come back to, including uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who is one of the four uh, called the squad uh, in, uh, in the House, uh, four congresswomen who've been a real thorn in uh, the Republican side, and all four won again in this vote, so quite, uh, quite decisively. I want to turn to a new phenomenon um, uh, with you, Jeremy, uh, come back to the uh, role of the mail-in and absentee ballots uh, since um, uh, voters have returned a, a record 64 million mail-in uh, ballots uh, before Election Day. And that's largely, of course, due to the pandemic-driven COVID-19 um, reality that uh, is uh, certain to, to mark this year. Um, some battleground states like North Carolina have been processing ballots for weeks. Uh, 
And um, just to give a, an idea of the scale, uh, mail-in balloting this year doubled from uh, 2016. I, I mean, is this a sign of the future? Um, I don't know if it's a sign of the future. Um, I mean, this opens up, I think, uh, a broader debate about uh, how do we live in a world of social distancing? Um, it's true that pandemics end at some point in time, that, that as hard as it is to imagine at this point right now, they do end at some point in time. Um, I'm not entirely sure that life back to normal is going to be either a possibility or something that uh, citizens and consumers really want. I think that's a really, really open question. And as a result of that, I don't know whether or not uh, we will um, uh, 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 see this as an accident or as driven primarily by the pandemic and by the need and legitimately need of people to basically protect themselves and vote uh, remotely, or if this is basically the new normal and new trend. I think this is a interesting question to watch for. Um, Returning to today, if I could, sorry, uh, it's true, a refocus. Uh, I, many observers have the feeling that in uh, some ways, the uh, advances in technology concerning mail-in and uh, concerning even a Zoom meeting like this, which uh, was perhaps unthinkable a dozen years ago, uh, is not followed by the process of counting. And counting has become central in the past 24 hours, where it's uh, still very traditional in, in many states uh, and not electronically calculated. Um, your feelings about, about this uh, uh, imbalance, uh, um, Jeremy, and then perhaps the other two. I mean, look, we're talking about a system that has survived for quite some time, a system that is consensual to the extent that there would be absolutely no majority to change it. And I think that we have to be mindful to a large extent of the, the traditions, I think, that occupy such a, a, a meaningful spot in, in, in U.S. politics right now. Um, you know, we're going through a period right now uh, in which there are many, many angry people in the United States. And uh, it's true that part of this anger is extremely scary. Uh, it goes on fields that uh, I can certainly not adhere to uh, in terms of racism, in terms of inequalities, both gender, social, uh, uh, racial, and so on and so forth. But on the other hand, there is an anger related to, I guess, the discomfort set by globalization and technology is part of the problem. And I don't think that we can impose uh, these types of solutions immediately. So I know that basically many people are asking, how is it that in the country of the Silicon Valley, it takes so much time to do it? On the other hand, glass half full would be to say, look, it's happening. There are incidents that we saw indeed, but they're contained. And uh, there's remarkable stability to a large extent in this uh, democratic uh, system. So, so I think we have to be mindful of this anger, what got us there, and that the technological part might be placing people in uncomfortable situations that we need to, to be mindful of. Uh, Megan, maybe I could turn uh, to you as the younger generation. Uh, I mean, uh, the young vote actually was uh, something that uh, people were uh, very aware of. CNN called it the year of the young voter, a VOA, a record turnout for millennials and Generation Z uh, voters. Um, a, a real surge, it seems. 
uh, of uh, voters in all, 20% between 18 and 29. Uh, this new technology uh, of uh, mail-in and uh, of uh, electronic counting should be second nature, but more generally, your, your feelings about uh, this upsurge of interest in uh, the younger generation in, in terms of this general election, which partly accounts for a record number of votes. Yeah, I think people are really energized uh, in a way that maybe they weren't in past elections, either because um, they simply weren't old enough or interested enough in politics, um, or perhaps because there is just so much emotion wrapped up in this particular election. Um, I, you know, I, I hear a lot of, um, you know, people, my friends, um, my colleagues, uh, talk and they're really concerned about uh, the climate. They're really concerned about, um, you know, levels of tolerance um, in the country. And I think that these issues for them um, are really tied to their values and their value system. And so I think they feel really motivated um, to go out there and vote um, and vote for, for change. Um, I think there are uh, still some youth vote that um, that Trump has captured, um, but I do feel that uh, the majority is really um, really for a lot of these more progressive um, causes like climate change, um, like the Black Lives Matter, uh, like healthcare. So I think that the younger generation um, is really um, not they're they're very uh, unselfish in some ways. They really want to push for um, a better future, uh, a better planet, uh, you know, a better country. Um, and so I think, yeah, they represented I think forty percent of um, of the the potential voice. So that's uh, that's pretty huge. Um, and I think the uh, you know the ease of voting. Um, it's always the question of can the young people actually get to the polls, right? We have all these opinions, but then do we actually? Um, you know, go out there and vote. And I think uh, technology would definitely be a boon to the youth um, in terms of ease of voting, uh, you know, if people are able to do it more easily. Um, and I think when I think about that, it's really hard um, not to touch on the, uh, you know, the feeling that um, voting should be easier in the United States than it, than it is. So perhaps we're not ready for, um, you know, technological advances in the election process, but maybe it's something as simple as removing some of the barriers that, that do exist that are just so cumbersome. And, and often manipulated, as Chantal, you alluded to earlier. Chantal, you're regularly in touch with uh, the uh, younger generations uh, that you've been teaching over the years. So um, uh, do you feel, you know, a study showed recently that 7 million more young uh, are, uh, have a history of voting more than uh, in 2016. So there is this growing consciousness that Megan was um, referring to. And so... Uh, uh, the, the, the activism also of uh, groups like Black Lives Matter seems to also have awakened um, their, their political conscience. Uh, the Wisconsin uh, representative, um, David Bowen, credited uh, the win for the Democrats uh, to the activism of um, Black Lives Matter and, and of the youth. Uh, your feelings uh, about uh, this element of the votes uh, in the presidential campaign um, elections? As, as Megan pointed out, this question of engagement, and one could see this as the silver lining of 
what has been happening over the past couple of years, this idea that a lot of the CNN exit polls asking uh, either the Biden or Trump supporters, what were your main concerns for Biden supporters? The first concern was the issue of racial justice. This was diametrically opposed to what the Trump supporters were saying was the economy. Um, the economy overcame issues of healthcare, the pandemic, et cetera. So this idea that if racial justice has become such a flashpoint, we can really, I think, be calling upon ourselves to ask how voting is structured in a very specific way. So yes, we're dealing with issues of technology versus tradition, but we're also looking at who or what groups of voices does the administration wanna be heard? Because we're not looking only at a question of how technology could have helped, but we're also looking at the Trump administration not allowing Pennsylvania to start cutting the absentee or the mail-in ballots until election day. So the question is like, why is Pennsylvania taking so long? Oh, it must be a question of technology. Actually, no, these are structural issues that the Trump campaign foresaw Pennsylvania being such a, a battleground state much more than in the past. So therefore was hoping to suppress the, the mail-in ballots, thinking that as we saw that they would be skewed more democratically. So all of these questions, I think, have been giving us, or giving especially the, the younger generation, this question of this moment of reckoning, really, that um, James Baldwin had mentioned many, many, many years ago, that this could be really this, the moment, finally, for us to be looking at our own ugly history, to be recognizing that there is a value gap in the United States, in which there's a clear value placed on white lives more than on black lives. We see this in very many instances. The Minnesota governor, after the murder, the death of Philando Castile had said, if Philando Castile had been white, he would be alive today. So I think this question of reckoning of activism um, in the younger generation, but really across the board, if we're looking at the different concerns that are important to Biden supporters, Trump supporters, that this can be what Van Jones and Megan, you alluded to this, okay, we are having perhaps a political victory, but maybe not the moral victory that the Democrats were hoping for, that on the contrary, we are seeing these signs of awakening of engagement that I think are extremely, extremely positive. Let me bring in uh, another crucial factor uh, in terms of this elections, and that, that is the, the role of the COVID-19 uh, crisis, both uh, in terms of health and in terms of the economy, um, as the number of victims continue to spike up, and we had a world record yesterday, yeah. and right in the middle of the uh, voting uh, being counted, uh, over a hundred thousand new uh, cases, and, and over a thousand people who died. Many uh, of the worst cases being the seventeen Trump, um, seventeen states where Trump won. Uh, uh, interestingly enough. And yet uh, it seems that in terms of uh, those, place, um, those areas, those states, the preoccupation of the economy is greater for a lot of the voters than uh, the worries and concerns over the, the health uh, and well-being of the population. Jeremy, you, you actually uh, um, described the tale of two economies uh, recently where the, the COVID was a crucial turning point in terms of a steady economic growth uh, pattern that lasted over 120 months, uh, a, a record um, during the uh, Trump presidency. And uh, this, uh, this COVID-19 factor changed a lot. How present was that in the minds of the voters uh, when they went to, uh, the, uh, to, to cast their votes? 
Well, I mean, it depends which ones. Um, longest expansion in uh, U.S. history, 128 months, eight longer than the previous record. Uh, that ended officially in February because recessions are called in the United States by the the, the NBER, who's who's officially responsible for identifying uh, uh, the turning points. Um, when you look at a, a poll. Oh, we've lost uh, Jeremy just for a moment. We'll uh, we'll get back to Megan. Um, perhaps uh, ah, Jeremy, you you've come back. Are you uh, with us I got again? Cut off. Pick up? No problem. I got cut uh, off. As you were I saying, <laughs> I am not paranoid, and I am not going to speculate on who tried, you know, to cut my internet um, <laughs> at the key moment. Um, so so 128 months. Yes, uh, r r roughly a third of the population, according to the Financial Times was uh, uh, saying just before the election that um, um, the um, uh, economy and that their economic state was actually better than four years ago. Roughly a third of the population was saying the exact opposite and roughly a third of the population was basically saying something in between, uh, uh, didn't know or roughly the same. So we have again an image of that, of that division. So to get back to your point and to your question, what was interesting, I think, was basically you had really two tales, as you said. One who basically, a set of voters basically saying, look, uh, uh, before the pandemic, the economy was going strong. This isn't a recession caused by bad economic fundamentals. It's a recession caused by the decision to lock down the economies worldwide. So to some extent, when you look at, you know, how I'm doing economically speaking, I'm actually doing better thanks to what? They would quote um, fiscal reform 2017, deregulation. And that basically means, you know, this is the type of expectations I have. Fine, Donald Trump is not Barack Obama. It's not, uh, he's not uh, a Dwight Eisenhower or Winston Churchill, but he gets the job done. That's what the Pittsburgh Gazette said over the weekend, uh, uh, endorsing President Trump after saying we endorsed Barack Obama twice in 2008 and 2012. It's pragmatism pushed to an extreme. So that's that's one tale of, of the U.S. economy. The other tale was to say, look, um, I mean, we're approaching uh, uh, not yet, but unfortunately, we seem that it seems as if we're going to get there fast. Uh, the 250,000 deaths related to COVID. Uh, to give you a rough idea, that's that's 25 times the number of casualties when you add 9/11, uh, the war in Afghanistan, and the war in Iraq. Uh, and we know how 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 significant uh, the legacy of the, those two wars and that attack was in in in, in contemporary U.S. history, right? Uh, uh, the same way, uh, we're approaching very quickly the um, uh, uh, ultimate number of, of casualties in the F Second World War. Uh, so, so, so this is quite something for, for a lot of generations who, who really feel that this pandemic was badly managed by uh, Washington and by Donald Trump. Uh, so this influenced, I guess, economic perspectives. It basically led a lot of them to say, we're in a recession and employment is going up and basically there are probably 5 million jobs that are never coming back. So again, we are in this very polarized environment, uh, uh, deep, deep divisions. And depending on who you ask, 
uh, part of them will say, yes, but this was just an accident of history, bad luck, and things will pick up again. And, uh, you know, the entrepreneurs, I'm not talking about the ideological vote here, but the entrepreneurs, the people who believe, I guess, in free markets or not, or the people who just want to go with their business and not have uh, you know, not express the need for true leadership or true uh, uh, leader uh, uh, at, at the head of the White House. Well, well, basically, they voted for Donald Trump and they had not, no problem doing it. Those who believe that, you know, you can't think economy long run without having a sense of leadership, without a sense of vision, or, or, and, and, and felt that uh, they were failed by the management of this crisis, well, had a lot of other things to say and had a very different narrative of the past uh, nine or 10 months. Let's turn to that 128 months briefly, and uh, Chantal and Megan, perhaps you could uh, respond in terms of uh, the Biden campaign saying, well, it was the Obama uh, administration and Biden was the vice president who laid the foundations for this prosperity and that uh, Trump just caught the ball as it was going up and moved it uh, further forward. Your response? Chantal, let's begin with you. This question, obviously, of I think the important issue here is, is narrative and how information is getting out, whether it's the question of, obviously, I think um, Jeremy can speak much more eloquently to the question of, of the economy than I can, but the idea that who is deciding, okay, whether it's Obama Foundation, whether it's the Trump's um, work, the idea here is the importance of I think what Jeremy was just saying, the crucial idea of, of leadership and how we can have faith in that leadership. And we're seeing so many times now that uh, the truth, obviously the, you know, the hashtag fake news that has become almost a joke now, but the idea of how much faith that we can be placing in our representative, in our civil servants, in the people that we hire uh, for these jobs, the idea that truth has become politicized, but also in the question of how the pandemic has affected the economy, how science as well has become politicized, um, the idea of how the, this administration has managed or mismanaged uh, the pandemic, we're seeing ideas of how the pandemic was trying to be monetized as well through the Trump administration with either the withholding of N95 masks, uh, the US shipping those masks out as opposed to keeping it for our healthcare workers. This idea that this is a significant issue of what narrative is being laid out, how we're coming to understand behind the scenes. And I think that's gonna be calling upon ourselves to ask a lot more questions, both of our electorate, of our elected officials. The idea that um, Megan alluded to earlier that there are all these hopeful signs. We had the highest turnout since 1900. So I think that we are the electorate, whether it's getting younger, whether it's becoming more informed, all of these signs are very hopeful that we can get to some clearer answers, I think. Megan, you uh, were involved uh, for um, several years, over a dozen or uh, uh, 10 years on uh, building brand equity, for example, in 30 uh, plus countries and uh, working in, in the business. Uh, how do you see uh, the economic uh, question uh, um, in terms of uh, Trump's legacy and, and, and in terms of its impact in these elections? Sure. I, I, um, I always think of a quote by Bernard Arnault, 
um, famous Frenchman uh, head of LVMH group. And uh, after the 2008-2009 crisis, uh, he was quoted saying that, um, you know, he, he's planning his business um, assuming that these types of recessions are cyclical and that they tend to happen around every 10 years. So I think looking through it uh, from a business lens, um, it's not necessarily surprising that we did find ourselves in um, in another downturn. Um, I think the, the fact that it was um, coronavirus, uh, COVID-19 caused uh, was certainly a surprise. Um, I think in terms of the, uh, you know, the US and the economy um, and what this means, I think, you know, I really see how a lot of um, people are really, you know, you know, rallying around Trump because they do feel that he has been the one who's led this expansion. I think the reality is that uh, it, it probably did start um, as part of the recovery from the 2008-2009 crisis. And that's just kind of how these things evolve again over that 10-year spectrum. Um, and I think that we also have to look at um, the quality of the uh, unemployment that we have in the United States. So, um, you know, when we look at this low unemployment rate before COVID hit, how many Americans were working two part-time jobs making minimum wage, what's, I think it was $7 an hour um, when I was working and it's only, and that was over 10 years ago, um, and now it's only $9. Um, so I think then when you put that in the context of, yes, okay, these people aren't unemployed, they're productive members of society, but, um, when they were getting the stimulus checks as part of the COVID-19 relief, um, yeah, there were some people who were saying, I'm actually better off um, because I'm getting more money uh, in my pocket. So I think there, there is this real tension between the people who believe that um, deregulation and trickle-down economics work, um, and then the people who are really out there, again, working these uh, jobs and, and not seeing it materialize. So I think, um, you know, America needs to find a balance. We don't want to crush innovation. We, we don't want people to stop following and pursuing the American dream. But I think at the same time, the, there's, there's statistically proof that, that the inequality divide um, has grown. So we have to, uh, again, find some way to, to find a balance. Um, and I guess the last point I'll say is, in terms of um, the manufacturing job, so a lot of, um, you know, if you look back at um, at the beginning of the modern times, uh, a lot of manufacturing was happening in the United States, and we've seen that progressively move overseas. And I think a lot of um, people's frustration, and these are a lot of the people who are supporting Trump, um, they have... They haven't been uh, retrained. They haven't been given other viable alternatives to make, um, you know, the same type of living that they saw their parents and grandparents have. Um, and then you have the millennials who are completely disenfranchised by the fact that um, we've had two severe recessions. Um, we're taking longer to get married, not buying property, um, you know, not having kids. So there's there's just all these questions, um, and and we're leaning more towards um, two extremes. Uh, and I, I think we need to, this, this again, I, I see the task for whoever uh, wins the election is to, how do we bring people um, to the middle and how do we find some balance? 
Thank you. Uh, before we move on to the uh, Senate and uh, House votes, and uh, I'm hoping uh, also that we'll have time to discuss uh, the foreign relations uh, and foreign, uh, foreign policy visions of the two candidates to the uh, presidential spot. So uh, final question uh, about uh, the, um, uh, uh, the profile of uh, the voters. And I, I thought you might be interested in responding to uh, the statistics that have come out e already about uh, who has been voting uh, for which candidate. Um, in Michigan, for example, I, I read uh, that uh, it's uh, for Biden, it's been primarily women, 57% against uh, 43 for Trump. And um, that's, uh, 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 they, they represent 55% of the voters. A huge majority of the black population, 89% uh, voted for Biden against 43% um, of the, the white votes, which represented um, four fifths of the, of the votes. Also strong representation for the Hispanics, 59% um, voted for Biden, and then the youth. Pennsylvania, very similar kind of profile. So these are two uh, battleground states. Uh, uh, to give you a specifics, 56% um, uh, of the women in Pennsylvania voted uh, for uh, Biden. 92% um, of the, of the uh, Black population, 69% uh, of the Hispanic and Latino population, and 61% of the young. Jeremy, is that representative? Uh, it, it's hard to say, and I think that we'll we'll, we'll need to dive into the numbers once they're uh, they're definitive. And 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 uh, um, in comparison, I guess uh, countrywide. And I think it would be an interesting exercise to try to understand, you know, what's uh, what's um, the um, uh, uh, um, Trump coalition really look like? Was this a real referendum against Donald Trump? in which case, you know, any candidate would have been a good one, which I'm not entirely sure that's the case and that I'm not entirely sure that's truth. Uh, but it's true that this coalition is shaping to start to look like, I guess, a little bit the, the Obama coalition that we wrote and, and discussed so much about in 2008 and 2012. Um, what also occurs to me is you know, uh, back in uh, late September, um, about 60% of American citizens believed that if um, Joe Biden was to be elected, this would be a one-term president. And I think that what is interesting with this is that usually you don't get excited, you don't get motivated for a one-term president. And yet these numbers certainly suggest the opposite and certainly suggests that uh, some demographic groups certainly got excited, even if there is, I, I mean, let's not, let's not lie, there is that presumption that there is a possibility that uh, Biden might not be even going through uh, uh, the, that, 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 that first term if he doesn't get, get elected. Um, I, I think there's a real debate over, uh, you know, the type of leadership that it will take to uh, reconcile a country as a whole. Um, I think Obama had uh, uh, part of what it took. Uh, I think that he ultimately faced a lot of opposition in Congress and uh, probably was, uh, um, I guess, uh, 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 the figure that, that, that didn't go to full reconciliation. 
What's interesting about Joe Biden is that he has all of this experience in the Senate. He has all of this experience of being, to some extent, in his own way, a populist in a sense of being very close to people, in the sense of being able to address a wide range of constituencies. And again, the numbers you talked about certainly suggest that. And I wonder, is this the type of recipe, the type of transition you might need to reconcile this country going down the line? Maybe, but that's gonna take a lot of political savviness, a lot of societal savviness. And it, it's, not, it's, not, it's not crystal clear to me uh, what the path is because a broad coalition is good, but then ultimately it's not on that coalition that you can rely only to reconcile a country. It has to be the electorate as a whole. And that's going to be a really defining question for coming months and coming years. Well, so many points we could discuss uh, in, in your answer. Thank you. Uh, one thing you didn't touch, uh, um, and I'd like to perhaps uh, turn to uh, both uh, Megan and Chantal uh, for this, and, and that is um, the fact that uh, the women seem to strongly have changed camp or in, in these two examples. And again, of course, uh, Jeremy, you're absolutely right that this is just two amongst the uh, 50 states. And, um, but I thought they're interesting since they were really divided down the middle. But is this also a war of sexes? Is it also divided down the middle in terms of uh, white uh, male voters and uh, uh, women and, and minorities on the other side, uh, and so has that evolved in the last four years? And uh, what you brought up, Jeremy, about it quite possibly being a one-term presidency is that uh, the person right uh, under, right next to uh, him, will be Vice President Kamala Harris, who's uh, not quite half his age, but could be his daughter, uh, Chantal. It's an excellent question, and I think uh, the flashpoint word that Jeremy used is this idea of reconciliation. Um, today's uh, op-ed piece by Charles Blow in the New York Times, like the title is very significant, the exit polls point to the power of white patriarchy was his title that he chose, and the idea that, um, and these are exit polls, again, they're not polls that are taken from mail-in ballots, obviously, but that three out of every five white voters are Trump voters. So this question of, this reckoning and this question of reconciliation, as Jeremy is saying, that has to be coming from the electorate itself, this idea of division, which is so deeply entrenched when we're looking at what are the issues that matter in terms of racial justice. We have many voices in the Black Lives Matter movement who are asking us to call into question when Joe Biden, when people re are reacting to, for example, the shooting in El Paso, Texas, when the shooter had the manifesto, which was clearly based on Trump's speeches of talking about the foreign invasion and how we're being overrun by people of color. And when Joe Biden, when other people of privilege are able to say, this is not my America, it's a question of saying, actually, this has been America for hundreds of years. So the opportunity that we could be at if there is the, the courage to do so is to be really asking ourselves the tough questions. Are we willing to make the substantive changes that are reflected in obviously very real situations of how policing is conducted in the United States to questions of voter activism and voter rights? The idea here is this is a very powerful and potentially optimistic moment. I would like us to, you know, remember that at this moment that, as you mentioned, Daniel, at the very beginning, you know, the four members of the squad have been reelected in landslide victories. 
the, obviously I know you wanted to talk about the Senate, um, but maybe Megan would like to answer also or talk to this question about how racial justice will be so significant, but the idea of this referendum that we were looking for, how the Senate and the House either are losing seats or gaining seats. Um, we lost, the Democrats lost five seats, the Republicans, we gained six seats. So this idea that there's this back and forth that we're not necessarily gonna to come to this moment of consensus, but I still hope that it could still be a moment of reconciliation if we're really, again, willing to look at what are the deeper causes of this. Megan, your response uh, to both what has been said by, by uh, Jeremy and Chantal and uh, the profile that I suggested, which again is uh, just a, almost a, a straw uh, poll and, and not so nationwide. Megan. Yeah, I think the topic of gender within the election is really interesting. Um, I think I had seen uh, a study that was saying that uh, about 50 um, percent of white women had voted for Trump um, in the last campaign or the last election and now it was up to 55 percent um, and people were a little surprised by that wondering why even more women um, would vote for someone who has had so many um, you know question marks on his profile um, and I think you know there is this idea of the um, the patriarchy um, that I think a, a lot of women um, I think still still buy into in a lot of ways. Um, there's this quote by uh, Aviva Whittington Cox, and she um, is CEO of a, one of the leading gender equality um, companies. And she said that uh, for you know for my mother, um, for instance, her grandmother um, got the vote. Um, she got the pill, and I got um, a great education. So. I think we're seeing progress being made, but when I think about um, someone like my, you know, my mo my mother's generation going to the polls, I think they still um, very much came um, came up in a, an, an environment where, you know, sexual harassment was not uh, the Me Too movement had not happened. Um, a lot of women were, you know, if they're experiencing this, then they're kind of told, well, you know, it, it must have been your fault. You you must have asked for this. And I think that when you have that sort of um, environment, that you know, it's very easy to continue um, kind of operating. Um, with those uh, beliefs, I think also um, for a lot of people uh, with Trump. Um, the idea of abortion rights um, in healthcare, I think those are key um, key issues for them, um, and they they will stick with whoever um, is is pushing for those, regardless of um, whoever uh, their profile is. Um, and then I think there's uh, also with the patriarchy this idea of um, the machismo, um, of this like you know what it means to be a man and be manly. And I think Biden and Trump uh, really, I, you know, represent two different ideas of that, right? So Trump is very, um, you know, in your face. I'm a man. Let me show you how manly I can be. And I think that that, that resonated a lot with um, with the women who maybe do still find themselves under, um, you know, uh, this more like traditional patriarchy um, belief system. And I think that's also uh, why he was able to garner so much of the um, Latino vote, uh, looking at like Miami, for instance, where, um, you know, they he really connected with them on that. Um, yeah, so, so that's where I'm thinking. 
Thank you, thank you. Let's turn now to the balance of power, and that means uh, looking at con Congress and who's controlling it. So, uh, there are still uh, some races going on. Uh, for example, in the Senate, 31 of the 35 uh, races have been called, so four are still outstanding, and they could be crucial because there again, we are in a fine balancing act where both Democrats and Republicans have 48 state seats each. Um, and in the House, there's been a, quite a loss and quite a, a surprise, I think, in terms of uh, what people were forecasting, in that the Democrats, after a very strong midterm uh, showing, have lost five seats and the Republicans have gained six. Um, so they, nevertheless, the Democrats are still uh, 14 seats ahead, 204 against 190, but they need 218 before they would have a majority. Jeremy, your uh, response to uh, these elections. Yeah, so the projections overall suggest that uh, the Democrats are going to keep the House and it is rather likely that the Republicans will keep the Senate. This has a few ramifications. So as uh, uh, Chantal and Megan uh, pointed out, there are uh, uh, many people who are getting reelected, so a lot of familiar faces. This is the, the the squad in uh, in in the House, in the Senate. Uh, again, back to the theme of no repudiation of Trump in the United States. Um, uh, Mitch McConnell in Kentucky, Lindsey Graham in South Carolina, who were uh, steadfast allies of uh, President Trump. Uh, many uh, opponents to President Trump promised those two people. Uh, 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 many, 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 many fights uh, to get them uh, uh, to, to lose their bid for re-election. Uh, uh, well, they got re-elected in, 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 in an undeniable way, meaning, again, no repudiation of Donald Trump. We see those themes, again, in Congress as well. The other implication of this, I think, is that um, if this is a Joe Biden presidency, and again, at this hour, it looks like the likelier outcome of this uh, election. It means that you're still going to have a president facing a divided Congress and a president who will need to um, work very closely with Congress uh, in order to get many things done. So to give you a couple of examples that uh, are, are I found interesting and important. So uh, you look at the, uh, the green initiatives on um, in um, Joe Biden's platform, that uh, is actually a huge, huge amount uh, 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 of money devoted to green initiatives, $2 trillion. It goes beyond what Obama had imagined. Uh, what is interesting about this ambition is that uh, the president of the United States, as powerful as he may be, uh, will not be able to do this all by himself. So he's going to have to go negotiate in Congress. Uh, and be careful because I don't think all Democrats are going to subscribe to that immediately, especially those in swing districts of the House, especially those uh, senators up for re-election in a couple of years. This is not nothing obvious. So you're going to have to see a lot of negotiations. That being said, Joe Biden is a guy who knows, again, the Senate uh, 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 very, very well. He knows how it works. So he might have a little bit room for maneuver. <laughs> The second example that I find interesting is on the question of the Supreme Court. So as we know, uh, uh, there's now a, 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 a somewhat of a different balance on the Supreme Court, six conservative judges against uh, uh, three uh, uh, named by Democrats. 
um, there has been this whole conversation about court packing, namely saying, look, uh, there's a possibility that we add judges on the Supreme Court in order to rebalance uh, uh, um, the, the Supreme Court. Uh, Joe Biden has addressed this point in a way that I find very interesting, which is basically the risk of doing that. So first and foremost, there is the legality issue, which is huge. And uh, students of history of the 1930s knows, know what happened to Franklin Roosevelt when he tried that. But uh, he says something even more striking to me. It's uh, running the risk of uh, making the Supreme Court even more political than it is or addressing the risk of politicization of the Supreme Court with further uh, 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 pushing it even further down the political road. And he said there is an alternative to all of this, which is basically legislating and legislating and legislating because the Supreme Court basically can't go against the the laws of the land and what has been voted by Congress. And this is extremely interesting because it means here too what happens between Congress and the executive branch is going to be central in months and years to come on those two issues, the green uh, uh, transition and the Supreme Court. And I'm sure there are many other issues, but I found those two issues uh, quite striking in the recent public debate. Thank you. Uh, perhaps um, um, we could turn uh, to Chantal uh, uh, concerning what seems uh, a, a dichotomy that's uh, um, the more locally based uh, elections uh, on the ground, uh, such as uh, the ones we see for the House, uh, where you have 435 seats and they're very local um, uh, campaigns, uh, seem to have swung or the momentum that was building up for the Democrats slowed down two years later in, in these votes and uh, to a lesser extent so with the Senate, where there has been a, a slight shift towards the Democrats, but very slight. Very slight indeed, Daniel, this idea that it's only one seat gained in the Senate for the Democrats with one loss for the Republicans. It's really in the House, like you're saying, in these local elections, which six seats were gained by the Republican Party. And again, going back to this idea of repudiation, which Jeremy has brought up, this idea that it's very easy for us to say that uh, once Trump is replaced, if Joe Biden, if the Joe Biden presidency occurs that this moment in history or an American, the American moment will be over. However, it's not Trump. Many commentators, um, especially the Princeton professor, Eddie Gloud saying that this is Trumpism, this idea that it's not just a question of a person and to scapegoat the president is extremely facile for us. We can take ourselves off the hook by saying that this is localized in one person, but we're seeing in the loss of five seats in the house for the Democrats that this is actually not. This is a, a phenomenon of perhaps which Trump is or was a symptom. But again, this moment of what does this mean for us as an electorate, I think is very, very telling in this loss of, as you're saying, the momentum for either the blue wave for the House. If we're looking at also how Americans feel comfortable with the balance of power with the three branches of government, do we want gridlock? Do we want this you know, checked level of power? is perhaps a structural issue, which we can go into, but the idea of specifically speaking to this local level of the loss of seats speaks to a larger issue of how Trump and Trumpism is not just a localized moment, which not, won't go away as he has promised himself as well. Even if he loses the White House, he promises to stay around to make noise. 
And this is again, echoing and having a lot of resonance for, for people, which we need to be looking at. Time is uh, moving on a pace, so I'd like to turn to uh, our final ex um, subject uh, of exchange uh, and start with you, Megan. And given that we are uh, from HEC Paris uh, in the heart of France, I'd like to uh, ask you to uh, give your vision of uh, American foreign policy uh, in the coming years and bring out your crystal ball. And uh, let's start with the European Union clearly uh, has been um, tired of uh, being, uh, I think, uh, Washington DC's junior partner. Um, and uh, there is uh, a reality, should uh, Biden um, take the vote, he is a transatlantist, a very transatlanticist, uh, very proud of his roots in Ireland. Uh, and uh, um, to build on what Jeremy said earlier in terms of his green uh, um, initiative, uh, $2 trillion, one of the things he might well do uh, immediately is to uh, repeal the decision to leave the Paris Climate Agreement, which actually took place uh, yesterday. Um, the other thing is uh, reinstating the United States in the World Health Organization, but we'll move, um, uh, let's focus on the EU, the relationships between uh, Europe and uh, the United States has, has taken quite a battering in the past four years. Your feelings about, uh, about that and what Biden could bring? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, one of his strengths is definitely foreign policy. Um, so there's no question about that. Uh, I think with the, with the traditional American uh, allies, uh, the EU and Europe being one of them, um, we have seen um, that kind of fraying at the fringes over the last four years. Um, I think Trump has, um, has not made it so clear that, um, that those are the ties that, um, you know, we're really going to prioritize. Um, and I think Biden, um, has has definitely said you know that uh, it it would look similar to what he has done in the past um, with with much of his foreign policy uh, rules. So I think I think in Europe, um, having lived here now for a, a year, uh, I, I think it's it's much. Um, much more social. Uh, it's much more uh, progressive in terms of, um, of climate and different actions that um, the different countries are taking. And so I think that uh, if we have a Biden presidency, uh, ideally, I would like to see, um, you know, the U.S. Um, playing a greater role, being a, a better partner. Um, and I think that what we've seen with Trump kind of taking a backseat to some of um, these issues or trying to um, be a little bit, uh, you know, America first and a little isolationist um, is that the you know the world moves on so America has uh, has traditionally been a, a leader of sorts in some of these conversations um, but I think the you know the world is going to move on and especially uh, just looking at, at climate I think we saw China and Japan step up with their um, carbon neutral goals um, in the near future um, I think the EU is already making um, and the UK as well are making huge um, moves towards that and so it, it really seems at this moment in time um, that that America is kind of falling um, 
falling to the back. Um, and I think that if Biden is elected, then we have a chance to, um, to start moving forward in that direction that the rest of the world is going in. Um, and one other point I want to make, uh, being a, an MBA student at, uh, you know, one of the top global MBA programs, our program is 92% diversity on average. Um, you know, this idea of global business and globalization uh, and this interdependency across countries is not going to end. It's the future. It's here and now. So, um, you know, the stance that Trump has taken to me feels a little bit like uh, we're afraid of change. Um, and I really think that uh, if you look at anything, um, you know, technology, whatever it is, uh, it's usually better to embrace it. Um, and try and figure out how you can um, you can excel in it. And so I think uh, America would benefit from from changing its current stance. Chantal, uh, a study recently showed that Europe has lost the trust in uh, the United States, and uh, certainly the EU president Ursula von der Leyen uh, hopes for a more revitalized multilateral system and, and therefore needs Biden for this. As uh, Megan was saying, traditionally the United States has been very involved in multilateral exchanges and in the last four years has been pretty counter current to, to that. Your feelings about um, EU and, and European uh, relationships uh, under uh, potentially a Biden presidency? I think the idea that even the idea of optics of how even this decision of moving away from, as Megan said, the isolationism, this, this fear that Trump has instilled for foreign relations that the move from a Trump administration to a Biden administration, that alone, the shift and the power of that perception from the United States um, into the world can have huge ramifications for that alone. If we think about how much cultural capital the United States has had just in the idea of its soft power throughout the world and how much of a loss we've had in the past four years because of Trump's isolationist policies that we can really imagine a, a different moment, a different historical moment with just the idea of Biden's openness and willingness to reopen those channels, to reintegrate on the national and international stage of how the United States is going to be perceived. Just looking at how my students are just asking those questions of like, how, how is this possible that has lasted so long? And the idea that the United States having lost its standing, if we're looking at the admissions of international students in the United States, even before COVID dropping so many percentage points, the idea that the idea that the United States was this mecca for which to go, whether for education, otherwise having lost its, its hold, as Megan was saying, that I think a Biden administration can be sending a different signal um, to the world, even just on optics, even before the foreign policy stances get implemented. However, Jeremy, uh, it's, uh, I think, not going to be a smooth, uh, ide idealistic uh, transition towards a wonderful honeymoon between the two. Uh, it's been relatively absent, the discussions about trade relations with one of the United States' biggest partner, of course. Uh, and um, Biden is not, I think, uh, going to ignore the calls that um, supported 
uh, trumps so so much, and that is a uh, um, you know United States first, and so on. Now, there, there's clearly a feeling that they want a stronger um, economy, more locally based uh, uh, in in the population. And uh, for example, the the tariff rise on cars, uh, I, I believe Biden might well uh, want to. Um, uh, to impose and uh, or to implement, and then that could well uh, uh, be the first uh, sticking point between uh, him and uh, his uh, EU partners. So one thing is uh, unquestionably the, the style, and um, Biden has very close uh, advisors that are um, uh, very well versed in in Europe. Uh, there's a lot of talk about uh, his top advisors. Tony Gardner and uh, Tony uh, uh, Blinken being uh, amongst the closest advisors for EU uh, policy. Uh, your feelings about uh, how he could map out, again, he's not the president yet, but let's imagine. So, I mean, it would be wrong indeed to uh, think that there will be a new honeymoon. It would be even worse to think that uh, basically, you know, all is good and we go back to to normal, uh, there is no new, new nor or at least there is a new normal, and back to uh, back to what it was isn't going to happen. Um, I think many Europeans are uh, waking up to this very uneasy and yet uh, crucial and critical feeling that um, you know they're the senior partner in this transatlantic relationship now. They're the ones uh, who will need to basically grab America by the hand and uh, start basically rebuilding and rethinking what uh, the post-pandemic world should look like, especially from uh, international government go governance standpoint, excuse me, and from the standpoint of international organizations, the WTO probably being uh, the most important one. Um, I, 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 I don't know whether Europe wants to take on that task. I don't know if they think they have the means the political means, the financial means to do it. What I do know is that if Europe doesn't do it, uh, it can keep on, uh, you know, complaining about the state of this transatlantic relationship, but it's not going to change anything about the state of this relationship. Uh, and this isn't even about Donald Trump, you know, I mean, Barack Obama would come to EU summits, have 28 different people around the table, scratch his head and ask, what are we doing here? I don't understand who I'm talking to. So this is a very long-term trend, very long-term in the sense that it goes beyond Donald Trump. And it's something that I think Europeans should really be uh, thinking about and working on in terms of saying there's huge risks involved because, you know, in global governance, we say, yes, there's always a pilot in the, in the plane unless there's no one in the plane, what we call the G0 world. Uh, and um, uh, 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 if we want to avoid that, then I think it's time for the Europeans to understand their strengths and understand that there is a huge boulevard that just opened up, that opened up a little bit of time ago. It's still opened up and uh, maybe uh, uh, a Joe Biden presidency would allow them to uh, um, uh, uh, think about, you know, what could they construct? But they're certainly going to need to play the more senior role in this relationship. Yes, uh, interesting times and challenging. Uh, I was reading recently uh, an article by the uh, former uh, Deputy National Security Advisor Ben Rhodes about uh, this idea that uh, the international community will re welcome uh, into their orbits uh, the United States as saviors of the of the liberal international order after the four years of chaos under 
President Trump, and uh, he warned, however, that uh, the, this is going to be very difficult. Uh, a Biden victory would, he said, offer the temptation of seeking to restore the United States post-Cold War image of itself as a virtuous hegemon, but that would badly underestimate the country's current predicaments, which, uh, of course, is uh, reflected in this ongoing election. My thanks to all three of you uh, for exchanging for uh, over an hour on um, so many of these subjects. I think we've covered a lot of terrain and uh, I, uh, I hope to meet you again um, in, in three years time, uh, four years time as we did four years ago uh, to discuss uh, the, uh, the highly interesting and uh, very debatable um, uh, American politics and presidential uh, elections. Thank you very much.